Bay Local Station Board. You're listening to KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, and stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stones. This is Jennifer Stone with Stones Throw. And today is July the 20th. 2004. Uh, today, I plan to read you some passages from uh, a woman who sacrificed her life, or at any rate her sanity, to feminism. Um, I think she's gone over the edge, last I heard. The woman is Andrea Dworkin, and her book is called The New Woman's Broken Heart. Uh, I've been carrying it around with me recently uh i want to do this because feminism is so out of fashion just now i try as hard as i can to be uh politically incorrect and out of passion out of fashion that is uh <laughs> yes freudian slip there uh you remember the fist in the air feminism that we fought for in the 1970s you know we blinked and it was gone Today, we have to be very circumspect. Always put a disclaimer on any talk about women's rights. You know, we must always cough and say, oh, excuse me, human rights. You know, uh, if we speak of war crimes, we must always point to woman's complicity. You know, Saddam Hussein had this terrible mother. She screamed for revenge, that sort of thing. Uh, it is true. It is true. A worldwide ignorant motherhood is deadly dangerous, folks. In many ways, more dangerous than a worldwide ignorant military, as one pundit once put it. Yes, we make them, they break them. Um, if we speak of socioeconomic progress, uh, I'm always cautioned that I have to point out the relative wealth of women in the first world, you know, the sort of thing, uh, you can get the male pundits to take things seriously if it's bride burning or genital mutilation or something uh, that they can get their uh, hands on, something really grisly. Uh, but the notion that we should be making uh, the same salary as men, well, <laughs> let's face it, you know the sort of thing. Oh, Hillary Clinton, yes, she's been denied a speech at the Democratic Convention. And as someone I know said, well, she can just take her ball and go home. 
Ah, to compound that insult, she has been told she will be allowed to introduce her husband. My God. Oh, I hope that uh, HRC, I like to call her HRC, uh, her royal you-know-what, yes, Hillary Rodham Clinton, um, I hope she makes use of that ten minutes to promote her progressive agenda. I remember my favorite bit of Hillary bashing years ago was, uh, oh, one of the Christian conventions, yes, um, the gentleman introducing the uh, first speaker said that Washington, D.C., uh, this was back during the Clinton administration. He said, uh, it's not Sodom and Gomorrah out there. It's Rodham and Gomorrah. Take, yes, take heed. Um, I hope that Hillary promotes her progressive agenda because uh, in spite of what many people say, she does have one, you know. Even some of her critics, uh, Dick Morris, I think of, he says that she is the true ideologue. He says in his new book that she is masked uh, with Bill Clinton. He says what you see is what you get. But that Hillary is a, um ideologue, but she uh, she hides. She has a... Uh, she's two people, basically. Uh, I wonder why. I just wonder why she has to behave that way. Uh She's dancing as fast as she can, trying to get something done and be a politician at the same time. The latest hit on Hillary is a new movie, a remake of The Manchurian Candidate, in which Meryl Streep plays that demonic character, you know, made famous by Angela Lansbury. You remember the original movie with Frank Sinatra and all that. Uh, this time, with this remake... That character, the wicked, wicked, manipulating woman, the mother, she uh, is a lookalike. She's uh, made up exactly like Hillary Clinton. Uh, this is so pointed that even the actress Angela Lansbury, the one who played the original, has registered a protest saying that she thinks that uh, it's over the top. Never mind. It's the 20th century now. And we've all grown up, and we know that women can be just as foolish as men. They've proved that. Uh, well, not not quite, not quite. I like, when I'm watching television, I like to ask the young people, the uh, especially teenagers, I said, play, play a game with yourself. I said, imagine that all of the men that you see are women and then from time to time I try uh, say I say something like change the color make all of the black people white and the white people black and see what it looks like to you see if it looks kind of funny <laughs> I remember a student of mine once he was complaining he, he was complaining that uh, uh, you know uh, it was only when it was uh, men in charge that it was wrong or only when um, what was it uh only when black people were persecuted. You know the sort of thing. I said, well, let's do, let's do a little spin on this. I said, suppose you got up tomorrow morning and you looked at the Congress of the United States and it was all middle-aged, overweight, um, black women and another student said, with glasses, yes. I said, then, then I think we would know, you know, that it might be time, might be time to switch. But until then, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> Yes. Uh, and then, of course, they would prove to be equally human, uh, just as human as any guy 
Did you see uh, the foolish woman Britney Spears? I almost felt sorry for her. In Michael Moore's movie Fahrenheit 9-11, there's a bit where Britney Spears says that, well, you know, the president, he, he's in charge, and, of course, uh, we should just leave decisions to him, and he knows about what to do about these things. And I thought, gee whiz, that's back in the 50s, yes. The women who said... Um, they were uh, so grateful to leave it all to their husbands. Uh, Daddy knows best. Always there is that group of women with us. Uh, Michael Moore certainly nailed uh, Britney Spears, but good. At the same time, uh, I thought he might try to do something to educate the young woman. I've thought a lot about Michael Moore's movie, and uh, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful that he made the film, and I hope that it does persuade some of the people who hadn't made up their minds quite yet, you know. I hope it gets to the the swing voters, we call them. Uh, I was surprised for myself, for my own uh, information, my own knowledge. There was one new thing, something that I hadn't thought of, or at least um, something that scares me. Uh, in today's combat situation, it seems... The guys can put the music on. We see these fellas, you know, in the tanks and everything, and they've got the earphones, you know, and they can put on that vroom, vroom music to rev themselves up for battle. Uh, you know, I guess maybe they think it's a movie. You remember in Apocalypse Now, that Wagnerian opera, was it The Flight of the Volcaries? Yes, the helicopters, um... Robert Duvall, yes. All that nonsense, I remember they used it for car advertisements for months and months after the movie came out, right? Uh, once I remember, years and years ago, uh, a Vietnam veteran, he was talking to me after he saw Oliver Stone's movie Platoon. He said, well, um, I don't buy it. He said, I'll, I'll believe it or I'll... Uh, I'll feel right about the movies when they're honest, when they take out all that dramatic and romantic music and put in the smells. I said, well, you'll never get anybody into the theater case like that, you know. That's, I mean, realism doesn't sell. Uh, now, of course, these boys, these young men, they can have it all. All that stirring music, uh, you know, to get them fired up during the real thing. And if that doesn't scare you, well, uh, I can't help wondering what has happened to my country. Uh, I know that we have never been good, uh, in so many words, of course, but a nation that pays tens of thousands of dollars, uh, a fortune, for color photos of atrocities, but won't buy milk for the babies, medicine for mothers with AIDS, you know. Uh, mustn't complain, yes, we mustn't complain about the wretched of the earth, you know. It's not chic, this country, syphilitic with greed, eaten up with idiotic ideologies, jabbering about good and evil, instead of talking about the sick and the well, healthy or heartless, you know. There are people who are awake, and there are people who are pretty much asleep, comatose, in a tea 
the trance. Uh, and as I say, every time I get out my tracts on feminism and try to talk about uh, a woman's view of these things, I invariably get so much cranky mail that it does put me off. I've realized that recently. I've realized that uh, even I am susceptible when people complain or say that, you know, I'm an embittered woman, that sort of thing. It gets to me, and I uh, lay off for a while. I remember as a young woman, the first time I actually heard, I mean, I heard in the sense of going click in my head and registering the meaning behind the words, I heard a um, a man I was fond of say, uh, do you have any idea how unattractive you are when you speak about those things? And my little, my little brain, you know, <laughs> I finally realized that he was assuming, presuming, probably justly, that my first need was to be found attractive. And I guess I must have been oh, almost 40 by then. And it was um, a consciousness-raising experience. I had to sit down and think about that. I had read my Virginia Woolf, you know, don't be shrill. Don't speak up. Um, the reason I wanted to read you Andrea Dworkin is because many years ago she was being interviewed and someone asked her uh, why she was, uh, why she provoked people to such anger. And she said, well, I, I simply write what men do. And I thought about that for a while, and I thought, yes, uh, that's a death sentence. Speak truth to power, and they will, they will cut you down. Uh, let's see. Uh, let me get busy here. Instead of talking about, let me read you just some bits of Andrea Dworkin. I wanted to read her because I heard Larry Flint putting her down on the uh, radio recently, NPR. He said Gloria Steinem should get a life and Andrea Dworkin was really messed up, you know. This is a woman who has written uh, tomes about, uh, let's call it the war on women. What I like is this little personal book, The New Woman's Broken Heart. I've had it for years and years. I carry it around with me because it's uh, obviously autobiographical and personal. It came out in the 70s. It was printed over in uh, Palo Alto at the Up Press. Tiny little book. Uh, she uses the name Bertha Schneider in this book. She talks about herself as Bertha Schneider. Bertha says, I like the books these Jerko boys write, I mean, and get paid for. It's interesting. Capital, labor, exploitation, tomes, volumes, journals, essays, analyses. Oh, the effing have to do is stop trading in female Ass. Apparently, it's easier to write books. It gives someone like me a choice, laugh to death or starve to death. I've always been pro-choice. The ladies are very impressed with those books. It's a question of physical coordination. Some people can read and wiggle ass simultaneously. Ambidextrous. So now I'm waiting and thinking. And Frank and Sylvia Plath leaped to mind. They both knew Nazis when they saw them at some point. 
And there are a lot of ass-wigglers in the general population around them, wiggling ass while ovens filled and emptied, wiggling ass while heroes goose-stepped or wrote poetry. Wiggling ass while women, those old-fashioned women who did nothing but hope or despair, died. This new woman is dying, too, of poverty and a broken heart. The heart broken like fine china in an earthquake, the earth rocking and shaking, under the impact of all that goddamned ass-wiggling going off like a million time bombs. An army of whores cannot fail, cannot fail to die, one by one, so that no one has to notice. Meanwhile, one sad old whore who stopped liking it has a heart first cracked and then broken by the ladies who wiggle when they work. I'll skip now to the beginning of this book, a uh, section called How Seasons... How Seasons... Pass, yes, how seasons pass. The ladies who wiggle while they work. <laughs> there was a woman, writes Andrea Dworkin, there was a woman, she was a big woman, she was a sad woman. She had been in her life to the mountains and to the ocean, she had seen the sand. She did not go to the desert. She had never been sad before. She had felt everything else. She had been very smart all the years she was growing up. She had big, beautiful eyes, opened her legs a lot. She didn't remember much of all that. She had been very powerful. She had absorbed all the men she knew into her, one by one, two by two. Then as time passed, three by three, four by four, she remembered her husband. She remembered her first love. She remembered the first four men, even when she forgot the rest. <laughs> yes. The footnote here, Edna Mollet wrote the same in a poem once, saying, and after that, I always get them all mixed up. Sometimes, Bertha would walk down the street. She would see a face that remembered her. She walked faster then. When she was married, she had a dog and a cat. She did not think much of people then. Each day she thought less of people. Her friends liked her a lot. They thought that she was strong. They were good to her. Sometimes they touched her. Sometimes they fed her. Sometimes they put on a record, walked with her, gave her money because she was poor, her friends always cared what happened to her. The more they cared, the less she let them know. The more they cared, the sadder she became. She never betrayed her friends. She never betrayed strangers. She had a code. She wanted to be good. She wanted to be strong. She wanted to feel everything all the time. She wanted to feel so much all at once that she would die young, never have to grow old, never have to live all those years... She wanted to pack everything into a short space of time. Her first goal was 19. 
Then she became 19. She didn't die. It surprised her. Nothing had ever surprised her like that. When she didn't die at 19, she became confused, so she got married. When she got married, she wanted to live to be 80. That was her goal. She dressed well then, made a schedule, fed her husband, talked politely to his friends, was faithful, kept the house clean. Soon she was in great pain. Soon she was so lonely. Soon she woke up, made the beds, cleaned the house, did the laundry, made the dinner, did the dishes, watched television, went to sleep. Soon he stopped coming home. Soon they stopped making love. Soon... She knew she would live to be 80, and she didn't want that anymore, so she left her husband. She was poor again. This time, she thought, 33. She liked movies, books, music. It was harder to like people. She liked animals. She liked to talk to old people. She asked them where they'd been, how they'd lived. She asked them who they were and what had happened to them over the years. She was poor. She went to the city. She remembered then mountains, ocean. She remembered she had never seen the desert. In the city there was great pain and suffering. In the city there were poor people and hungry people and angry people and brutal people. In the city she sat alone. In the city she was alone. Everything changed. All day long she was alone. Everything was different. All day long she was alone. She was big and she was sad and now there were young boys. Now they were young, soft, unsure. There was a special one. He was short. He smiled. He had two dogs. She didn't have any power anymore. She had given it all away. The special one lived near her. He hung out on the street. He liked the violence of the street. He was very young he would feel it in the air, smile his smile, wait for it to happen. She liked him, and she was afraid. He wanted her to come to him, he asked her many times. Each time she smiled sadly. She had something to do. She was tired. In the heat of the summer she was dirty. Her feet had blisters, her skin had boils. Her sadness was in her like a lump, blocking her throat hurting her breast. Each day she passed him on the street. Each day he smiled and called to her. Each day he asked her to come to see him. Each day she wanted him more and more, and each day she sat alone, walked her dog, read a book, listened to music. Each day she was busy. Each day they smiled. She said, I will, and she did not. Then one day she did. She did because he was young and soft and unsure. And then he was her lover, and she became more sad. They walked down the street sometimes, and then winter came, and he was not young anymore. She was still sad, and still he was her lover, and sometimes they laughed together. She did not go to him anymore. When spring came, she left the city. She went to the mountains. She was alone there. When summer came, she let a young boy who lived in the mountains make love to her. Her sadness returned again and worse. When fall came, she began to wait for the snows. When the snows came, she took long walks. 
She had her dog and a wood stove. She loved her solitude. When spring came, she wrote small, fragile poems. She was twenty-seven now, and the city was her mirror. She wore heavy boots, smoked cigarettes. She gave quarters to the beggars. She drank tequila. And four by four, they were her lovers again. She was a famous writer by now. In the winter, many people wanted to talk to her. Many people took her to dinner, touched her knee, wanted her to know them. In the winter, she was more and more on the streets. In the winter, she fled from the people who wanted to take her to dinner, touch her knee, have her know them. In the spring, she left the city. She walked on the sand up and down the ocean's edge. She did not remember what it felt like now to be sad. In the summer, she wrote down everything she remembered. In the summer, people crowded onto the sand and at the ocean's edge. So she went to the mountains in the fall. A famous actor made love to her. In the winter, she forced him to leave. In the winter, she called him terrible names and felt great rage, and forced him to leave. Then spring came. She went to the city. In the summer, she was tired, weary into the marrow of her bones. Her physical vision diminished. Darkness began to close in on her. In the summer, she was so tired that the streets were blurred. She could not see well enough to read. She tried to remember her husband, her first love. In the fall, with all her might, she tried to remember. In the winter, the snows came. In the winter, she stayed in the city. In the winter, she died. She was twenty-nine. In this next section, we get some hints. I haven't quite figured out whether it's Warren Beatty or Clint Eastwood.、Uh, the rumor was that it was Warren Beatty that had the run-in with Andrea Dworkin. I remember her so often.、Um, uh, people would say, "Well, can't we get her to wear a dress or something?"、Uh, she was a tiny, tiny woman, and so soft.、Uh, she was just.、Um, I, I remember when I shook her hand, thinking, "Of course, this is the kind of woman that any sadist would crush, crush like a bug." She, she talked to me once on the phone, and I was almost irritated with the. The、um, the sadness. I wanted her. I wanted to say to her, you know, snap out of it, Andrea.、Uh, develop a tough sense of humor. Be like me. I have a wonderful review of her work from the London Observer back in 1987, in which the、uh, the writer Galen Strawson tells that tells us that Andrea Dworkin has a deep And enduring sympathy for men,、uh, it says this hidden sympathy is one of her strengths. For no one who can hope to understand the relations between the sexes, yes, can do so without a good measure of sympathy for both. But she doesn't give it enough voice. She keeps on succumbing to the vision-blurring high-juice polemic. She yields to distortions of passionate absolutism. She sacrifices insight to incitement. There is no doubt, writes this critic, that the position of women justifies quite a lot of polemic, although it can be self-defeating.
but Dworkin has the balance wrong, so she will be misunderstood. <laughs> Germaine Greer reckons that her book Intercourse is the most shocking book any feminist has yet written. But she means the ideas, not the language. Each exaggeration blows another fuse. The power falters, the illuminations flicker and dim. All I remember about Andrea is my knowledge uh, that she would go under. If you have any information about where she is now, the last I heard, things were not looking good for this woman. Um, she is truly one of the broken hearts of the feminist movement. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light em up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. On Sunday, July 25th at 2 p.m., KPFA and Stern Grove Festival presents Bombay to Bali. A free performance by the captivating percussionist and vocalist Trilok Gurtu, showcasing its intriguing world fusion which connects Indian singing and rhythms with elements of jazz, rock, and African music. The show also features the renowned local ensemble Gamelan Sekar Jaya, with special Balinese artists celebrating their 25th anniversary.